Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for loving us, caring for us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the immensity of your forgiveness, oh God. Thank you for giving us your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for your rich patience and long-suffering with us. Thank you that you lift up the brokenhearted and care for the needy. And, oh God, we pray this morning as we reacquaint ourselves with a truth that is so precious to us. I pray, oh Lord, that we will not fail to give due honor to you with great thanksgiving. You have given us amazing and immense blessings in Christ Jesus. And, Father, I pray that... um, that we might, uh, at this moment, uh, focus our attention on the realities of your word to us, the promises you've given to us, what you have promised to us for eternity. And, oh God, I pray that you may uh, shape our lives based on the truth that we hold to, I pray. And that we might not let go of what we believe, but that we might, Father, stubbornly hold on to the truth no matter what happens to us, no matter what our situation appears to be. I pray, O God, that we might not ever uh, turn from what we believe to be true. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen. As we get very close to the end of this first letter of Corinthians, which has become such an important letter for us to ensure that the right course corrections are taking place in our lives, the question that's really addressed in this text, 1 Corinthians 15, is what is the real hope of Christianity? There are a number of responses we could give to that and they are uh, no doubt we we could spend the morning talking about uh, the real hope of our Christianity having sins forgiven abundant life in Jesus Christ all the amazing things that we have been given but it would seem to me as we understand the promises of the New Testament that among the really greatest hopes of Christianity is bodily resurrection. Especially, you know, living in a, in a Western culture that is for the most part very comfortable and we feel very secure for the most part. And it's not usually until we're <clears throat> beside someone's very, very sick bed or we find ourselves there at near the end of life that we start to think about these things but the early church in the days of the early church with great persecution public scorn minimal lifespans burned homes the precious truth of um, bodily resurrection was pretty significant 
And Paul, uh, throughout the New Testament and other New Testament writers, talk about the greatness of eternal life. I mean, in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. A favored verse of all of us, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. But then in, in, in the book of, of Philippians, the Apostle Paul writes this in Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 to 11. And he says this. This is the great plea of his life. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. This was a very, very important matter to Paul and shaped his life and ministry. And he actually urges his people, urges the people of God to, to shape their lives around this promise, this great truth. We encounter a problem that Paul is addressing in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. We know that for the most part we've been encountering problem after problem. Either it was based on hearsay that people visited him and said, you won't believe what's going on in our church in Corinth. Or people were writing him letters and asking him questions. And so it is with this chapter. We come upon this confusion and, and lifestyle choice that they were making on the basis of their confusion that was really disturbing to the Apostle Paul with respect to the resurrection question uh, of Christ and his followers. And we can really find where the problem lies in two verses and it helps us to sort of shape the rest of how you look at this chapter. And the first is, of course, verse 12, where it says there, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Evidently, some of those in the Corinthian church were spreading around to each other and maybe those outside of the church, well, no, there's... There's no resurrection, there's no bodily resurrection of, of the dead. That's, that's not true. He also um, helps to shape the way he answers the question in verse 35 when he says, but someone may ask, how are the dead raised? In other words, Paul, look, we've seen dead people, we've seen what happens to them. Come on, how are they going to be raised? And so he he answers this question, these two questions fundamentally in this chapter, chapter 15. It's a very long chapter. And um, I want to give three insights this morning from this, this long text of Scripture. I'm not going to read all of it, but we're going to work our way through it and read lots of it. Um, don't, no, no, they, they believed in the afterlife. In fact, virtually nobody in the first century didn't believe in the afterlife. They all had some concept of there was some sort of thing happening after death, but we're just not sure what it is. And, and the Corinthians were falling into this same trap of, well, yeah, we know there's something, but we know what Paul said, but we don't think Paul's right, and we don't really know what's going on. And they were sort of merging their old beliefs, their pagan beliefs, with what they had learned in their new Christian beliefs, and, and it was affecting their lifestyles. What they were effectively doing is... Um, they believed that there was some afterlife, but perhaps it was just a spiritual thing. There was, 
It's sort of the airy-fairy. We don't know what this is going to be. We're going to be in some sort of state, but we're not really sure what it is all about. And, and as a result of that, because that was the prevailing belief of the pagans around them, as a result of that, it was affecting the way they were living because they were, they were thinking, well, look, it, it really is only my spirit that matters because the spirit is the only thing that's eternal. My body is irrelevant, so it really doesn't matter how I live. Yeah, I can do anything with my body, but as long as my spirit is engaged with Christ, I'm okay. And so as we've gone through the Corinthians letter, the first Corinthians, it makes perfect um, sense to us why they were having so many struggles they were living one way they were thinking their spirit was fine it was connected with god it was all taken care of and that's all it was for eternity anyway so it didn't really matter and that's what always happens when we confuse truth it always always affects our behavior truth is critical to how we live and that's why it was extremely important to paul that he straightened this out very quickly and so he makes the basic statement within the body of this letter in the body of this chapter that if you reject bodily resurrection of the dead, you reject the gospel. And he, he's, that's why he begins this way. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel. Okay? He's addressing the matter of the resurrection of the dead, but he starts off by saying, I want to remind you of the good news of your salvation and the theology of your salvation. I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. So he's basically quite mystified that they are now suggesting or saying that, that the, the dead are not raised bodily when in fact they had already, he had already preached it to them. They had already claimed to receive it. They had already claimed to be standing on it. And uh, now, by, the by this gospel, he says, you are saved, or it's a, it's a present future tense, you are being saved. You will be, and you are being saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. So you can see the stakes in this thing. What we believe determines our destiny, our eternal destiny. And he says, and, and so then he goes on to say, that, well, this is the gospel. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel, he says. If you reject bodily resurrection of the dead, you reject that gospel what Christ did for you. You can't have Christ, in other words, without the reality of his bodily resurrection. And if you reject his bodily resurrection, if you reject the resurrection of people, you are rejecting his bodily resurrection. The God, man, and his total mission are a package deal, in other words. By this gospel, not by tampering with it, not by some sort of buffet choice of cherry picking here and there you've got to take the whole package he said or you're missing the whole thing it's a central doctrine of christianity being saved is about holding to the truth of this gospel receiving it welcoming it into your life taking your stand on it continuing to believe in it till the day you die that's the gospel that's what is, is salvation. The belief confirms 
the present salvation which is necessary to reach the end. The bodily resurrection of Christ, he points out in verse 20, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, is the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. His resurrection is the promise of a harvest yet to come. That's what he's teaching here. And um, that's why uh, the Islam, Islamic faith is a false religion. Because the Islamic faith rejects the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, I have here a copy of the translation of the Quran in English, which I'm going to teach from today. But that's the first time in 88 years in the pulpit of Calvary that the teaching has come from the Quran. I'm not going to teach from it favorably, of course. But you, you ought to know because, because uh, so many, the situation is increasing, that so many of us are going to minister to Muslim people. And you need to know what their book says. And uh, with respect to this matter of the gospel, this is what is written in Surah 4, uh, 157. Surah meaning a chapter. I have trouble reading it because it's, it's odd, but here it is. That they said, in boast, we killed Christ Jesus, the son of Mary, the apostle of Allah. But they killed him not, nor crucified him, but so it was made to appear to them. And those who differ therein are full of doubts and with, with no certain knowledge, but only conjecture to follow, for of surety they killed him not. So you need to be certain that, that Islamic teaching is, that, is completely opposite the gospel. What Paul says here, you, you're required to believe in order to be saved, is rejected completely in the Quran. So it is not possible then to hold to the teachings of Islam with respect to Jesus Christ and be saved and have the promise of eternal salvation that is promised to us from the scriptures. But you, might, you, you also need to know when ministering to Muslims that in the Quran, Surah 5, verse 50, and in some translations it might be Surah 5, verse 47, it says this, let the people of the gospel, and that would be us, we're referred to in the scriptures, or in the Quran, as the people of the gospel or the people of the book. Let the people of the gospel judge by what Allah hath revealed therein. If any do fail to judge by the light of what Allah hath revealed, they are no better than those who rebel. Now, I don't know if you're catching this, but within the corpus of the Quran, it is stating that the gospel is the revelation of Allah. So what, in fact, is happening here is that Muslims are being told to believe that, that, that to believe their Quran is to reject the Quran. Do you see this? Because 
they are told to believe the Gospels, the Gospel, while at the same time saying the Gospel is not true. So you can't believe the Gospel is true and believe it's not true. So you can look at your Muslim friend, point this out to them and say, you have permission by your Quran to believe the Gospel. And you can take them then to the Gospel. So the teachings of other religions deny this Gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, without bodily resurrection, Christian belief is absurd and futile, as he goes on to write. Notice what he says in verse 12 and following. But if it is preached that Christ has not been raised, has been raised from the dead, if, if it has been preached, if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the I've been speaking from the Quran, now it's hard to flip into the truth. I need to be detoxified. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we, who, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. You see what he says here? If the dead are not raised, Christ is not raised. Our preaching is useless, it's futile. Your faith is useless. All who've died are lost. The whole deal is off. There's no Christianity to have if Christ has not been raised from the dead. And this is way beyond, of course, subjective spiritual encounter. This is about an eyewitness account. They actually saw Christ. That's the point here. This, these men were not living by faith with respect to this truth. You say, what? what are you talking about? No, they were not living by faith when they give us this truth. These were individuals who had eyewitness accounts. They actually saw the living Christ. They were living by sight when they delivered this to us. Look what is said in this text in verse 5. And that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. And after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living. They can corroborate what I'm saying to you, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James. Why does he highlight the name James? That's a brother of Jesus. Because James didn't believe in his brother. It wasn't until all of this transpired and then James became a bold servant of the living Christ. And then he, and then he appeared to all the apostles, it says. And last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. He appeared to me, Paul says. What do you think I was doing when he appeared to me? I was out killing Christians. That was my job. When Christ appeared to me, I, would, I had nothing to do with him. I wanted nothing to do with him. I actually rejected all of this, but I saw the living Christ, and he changed my life, and he says, as one abnormally born. He says, I didn't hang around with Jesus for three years like the rest of them. They had a head start on me. I just saw him. I encountered him on the road to Damascus, and he changed my life. 
and I've been living this way since then. He speaks to them with boldness. Without the bodily resurrection of Christ, everything I've said is futile. It's absurd. But I've seen him, he says. Our faith is rooted in history. Make no mistake about it. The uh, enemies of this truth would have produced the bones of Jesus or a corpse of Jesus if, in fact, they could have. There were a lot of things at stake on the matter of this crucifixion of Jesus Christ and his alleged raising from the grave. There were a lot of things at stake. If they could have produced Jesus, they would have. But rather, Jesus appeared alive before them and, and turned fearful people into bold witnesses for Christ who were willing to give their life for him. Secondly, because Christ has been bodily raised, so will those who put their trust in him. That's what this whole package deal is here from, from verses 20 and following. They saw him. They know he was raised from the dead. We need to understand with respect to our lives and the significance of this, not just for eternity, but for now, which sets up eternity, that the raising of Christ from the dead confirms the approval of the Heavenly Father to this sacrifice that Jesus made. And, in a, and, and because of that, God has pardoned us from our sins. A key verse is Romans 4.25 that all of us need to know. It really sets uh, everything in place. He, meaning Christ, was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. That word justification means to be declared righteous, to be pardoned from our sins, to be God-approved. Now, if Christ hadn't been risen from the grave, there would have been no assurance for any of us that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ was approved by the Father. There would have been no guarantee to us that God determined that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ was a substitute for our sinfulness. But by raising him from the dead, it is confirmation that God the Father considered the work of Christ on the cross on our behalf enough for us to be saved. This is an important, important doctrine to us. So without Christ's bodily re resurrection, those who put their trust in him would be putting their trust in him for, for nothing. It would be futile. Without bodily resurrection, there's no assurance. But in verse 20, he says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who've fallen asleep. And the word fallen asleep here is just simply meaning, who've, uh, we, we often use this terminology for those who've died because they're going to wake up. Particularly, those, it's the statement that's made here is those who belong in Christ. And then he goes on to say this, For since death came through a man, Adam, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. And, and then he, he goes on to say, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. This is the doctrine of original sin and depravity. When Adam sinned against God, when Adam rebelled against God, it infected all of us so that we all became sinners. We all became dead in our trespasses and sins. All humanity is dead. 
the crisis of humanity is that without some intervention from God, the, uh, the last headline in, in history is the, is the sinfulness of mankind. But because of what Christ has done, Christ has made it possible that all it says who are in Christ or belong to Christ will live. And in the absence of a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, in the absence of belonging to Jesus Christ, humanity remains dead in their trespasses and sins and sentenced to eternal death, eternal damnation. All related to Adam die. Everyone related to Adam is dead, regardless of the resurrection. But all who have found their way to Christ... All who he has received to himself, all related to him, will live. So the reality of this, but each in its own turn, he says in verse 23, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. The reality of this theology of Jesus Christ rising from the dead has everything to do with his relationship or our relationship with sin and what Christ has done for us. Death had to be defeated or sin wins. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. The only evidence that sin has been defeated is to defeat death. Because death is all you get from sin. And so for death to exist, it requires sin. For Christ to be raised from the grave implies that there has been victory over sin. That's the great truth of this particular event in the gospel. In the absence of that, the last headline, as I said, of humanity is sin wins. But because of what Christ has done for us, the last and final headline, which we're going to come to in a few minutes, is that Christ is our victory. Christ has accomplished victory for us on our behalf. This is a great truth. For Jesus to defeat death, get this, for Jesus to defeat death means he had to have conquered our sin. It means he had to have defeated our sin. For us to live forever, he has to have defeated sin for us or we can't live forever. And therefore, sin doesn't win because what, of cr- what Christ has done. Forgiveness means nothing if we still are facing the punishment of death. Do you understand that? But forgiveness means everything because Christ raised, was raised from the grave, has defeated sin, and therefore we will live forever with him because sin has been defeated on our behalf. We also learn in this text that Christ's resurrection has set in motion the final act of the absolute sovereignty of God. Look at how it's stated. Verse 24, then the end will come. Paul's talking about in the future. He's talking about in our future. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom, he meaning Christ, to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion and authority and power. Now, keep in mind, he's talking to an audience. He's talking to us. We're looking around and saying, what's going on? If Jesus Christ has been raised from the grave, the Son of God, why is life so miserable? Why are the Romans still 
harassing us? Why are we being persecuted? Why are our homes being burned? Why are the things that are wicked and evil going on in this world? Why does it appear that God is so weak? And Paul is saying, no, no, no. Then, this is just the start of the conquest of Christ over, over all of the universe. This is what's taking place. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. This is the final, we're, we're living in the final chapter uh, that's now in motion of all of, all of the universe being put under the submission of God, all in all. Until Christ is, is serving notice to God's opponents. When Christ sprung forth from the grave, he is serving notice on all of God's opponents that defeat is a sure thing. That everything in opposition to the ways of God will ultimately be destroyed. And the final thing to be destroyed is death itself. We still live in the age where death has been defeated but not destroyed. But there is coming an eternity whereby death is destroyed. It will never happen again because of what Christ has done. And then Christ himself, the Son of God, willingly, functionally subordinates himself to God so that God will be all in all for all eternity. This, this presents for us a, a, a really imp important parenthetical side note in this whole idea of functional subordination. The Son of God demonstrates for us what he wants us to do now. Depending on whatever role you have, whatever office you have in the body of Christ, whatever gender you are in the body of Christ, Jesus Christ sets the example for us here of what it means to glorify God by willingly, functionally subordinating himself to God that God might be all in all for his glory. Does that change the equality of Christ the Son with the Father? Absolutely not. Nor does it, does it change the fact that we have various functions, we subordinate ourselves to one another, we submit to one another based on role or based on office or based on gender to the glory of God. We are in effect living out examples of our own Lord and Savior who shows us this and then at the end of this it is the victory formation where Christ himself presents it all to the Father for, uh, to God the Father for, who is all in all for all of eternity and the resurrection hope is the only reason therefore that Christians can put the good life at risk notice what Paul says here in verse 29 now if there is no resurrection what will those do who are baptized for the dead if the people are if if the dead are not raised at all why are people baptized for them if you were been reading this text you're going what in the world did he throw in here this is unbelievable uh, I don't want to take a bunch of time here, but they were bringing in their old pagan ideas whereby they were baptism, proxy baptism with the idea that someone could be baptized for someone who was already dead and that could put them in some sort of good stead with the divine. In fact, there is still a religion that carries that on even today. And they use this text to, Paul is not 
speaking of this text in faith, this situation in favor. He's simply saying, if you don't believe any of this gospel, you don't believe any of this resurrection stuff, why in the world are you bothering then to, to have proxy baptisms? It's absurd. It's absurd the way you're living. And he goes on then to say, and, for, and as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every day? I die every day. I mean that, brothers. Just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus. Why? He said, I should get a different job. If this isn't true, if Jesus Christ wasn't raised from the grave, if I'm not looking forward to eternity and bodily resurrection and all that comes with that and all the great things that come along with that, I'm wasting my time. Not only that, I'm putting my neck on the line for nothing. I die every day. I risk my life every day. Why? Because I believe so much in this truth. I believe so much in Jesus. I'm willingly going to do this. I've passed on comfort. I've passed on. I could live like an Epicurean, eat, drink, and be merry. I could do that. I know what the good life is, going to the theater, having good food, having all kinds of friends, living a comfort life and all of that. I could do that. Why don't I do it, he says? Because I believe that this life that I'm living is so small in comparison to what's yet to come. And I have such a short window of time to represent the Lord Jesus Christ and make sure that people know about him. I, I can't afford to take the time with the comforts of life and, and, and all that goes with that. I have to put my life on the line because it's imperative that people know that Jesus Christ was crucified, was buried, was, and rose again for, for their salvation. I have to do this, he says. It's imperative for me to do this. So they said to him, so how are the dead raised? That's ridiculous. We've seen dead people. They, they're thrown in the ground. They decompose. They, they, their elements dissipate into the ground, and the grass grows up, and animals eat them. So actually, we all become part of all kinds of things. How are you going to raise that? They're saying to Paul, how's God going to raise that up? And so um, keep in mind here that uh, resurrection, the very word itself, means we will have bodies. I, I want to point out to you because uh, what Paul says to the Philippians again, verse, uh, chapter 3, uh, verse 20 and 21, but our citizenship, he says, is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform, underline this, our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Our future is bodily resurrection for all eternity. He's going to transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body, to dwell forever in a new heaven and a new earth, Revelation 21 and 22, the new Jerusalem, the, uh, the home of the righteous, purged of all evil, as Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 3, by fire, all evil will be purged from this new heaven and new earth. Creation, he writes in Romans chapter 8, awaits eagerly the redemption of the sons of God, the, the revealing of who actually belongs to him. Do we realize that all of creation has been submitted to frustration because of the sin of mankind. Uh, the, the creation doesn't work the way it should. Animals don't work the way they should. Nothing that, that works the way it should because of sin in the world. But this creation itself eagerly awaits for the final uh, coming of the, the culmination of the gospel. The gospel promise to people is also a promise to all of creation. And we are promised that we will live in a body uh, in the new heavens and the new earth. We won't be floating around in clouds wondering what to do, playing harps and all that kind of stuff. That's, that's not what we're going to be doing. We're going to be living on the new earth together in bodies. That's what we're going to be doing. 
He teaches us here in 1535 to 54, all in Christ will trade in a mortal, perishable, natural, corruptible body for an immortal, imperishable, spiritual, incorruptible body. What it will be like when all sin is finally destroyed and eradicated, none of us can even imagine what that will be like. That's what it will be. I am making everything new, Christ says in Revelation 21.5. The old order has passed away. And the, the question for them was, well, how is this going to take place? And, and Paul says, well, look around at creation itself. There's, there's hints. God's given you all kinds of, of hints in his creation about how he can make this happen. He said, for instance, take the seed, a seed of a plant or whatever. You put it in the ground. What does it do? It decomposes. It dies. And what springs forth is a plant. Now, seeds are not very impressive things. Think of a a sunflower seed. It's a kind of ugly little thing. It's a pathetic thing. You throw it in the ground. It dies. It starts decomposing. And then, poof. That's almost like the rapture. Then, poof you get a sunflower. Now you get from this pathetic little seed that's not very impressive to anybody. Nobody really thinks that's very beautiful. You get this beautiful sunflower. And Paul says, this is what's going to happen to you. Your sunflower seed body is going to be put in the ground. And they're going to throw dirt in it. And they're going to go back and eat potato salad. You haven't heard Tony Campolo, I suppose. And then, at the resurrection, it's going to spring forth, and God is going to make you into a spectacular new creation. What dies is nothing like what appears. Now, we're going to, in some way, look like we look, but in a more spectacular way. That we can't really, because we know that Jesus is an example when he came, uh, to, after the resurrection, he came to be among, among the people. He could eat or he didn't have to eat. He could be touched. He, he, could, uh, he could go through doors. He could appear. He could disappear. But he wasn't even yet in his glorified body, he says. There was more yet to come that he hadn't. But Paul descri- or John describes for us what we're going to be like. In, in 1 John chapter 3 um, and verse... Verse 1 or 2. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. We shall be like him. We shall be like Jesus Christ. It doesn't get any better than that, folks. Uh, I mean, I don't have all the details about what it's going to be like when we are sprung forth at resurrection, but we are going to be like the Son of God. And we will see him in all his glory, and we will be transformed. And, and there will be a change, a different environment. Why? Or why will we be changed? Because it's a different environment. A different body is needed. Entirely more impressive, without former limitations, more glorious than we can imagine. No sin, no evil, no death, no need for crying or pain. John Piper writes this, physical pain is God's blast with a physical trumpet to tell us something is dreadfully wrong, morally and spiritually. I know that's how I feel when I don't feel well. When when I'm in pain, I'm like, something is desperately wrong. It's not supposed to be this way. 
And, and so this, there's a, a pastor who uh, I was reading, he, he turned 65, and he said, you know what? He said, I'm, I'm a 35-year-old whose body is in pain. That's basically what it, what it means when you are increasingly getting older. But in truth, we will have no more pain, no more suffering. It won't be necessary. It won't be needed because of where we are. There will be no more sin. Flesh and blood, the more mortal, cannot take up residence in the eternal. We need to have an eternal life guaranteed body, stamped of approval from God. Not one that only lasts 80 or 90 years. We've got to have something that's going to last throughout eternity. That's the promise to us from here. Now... We are animated by physical life and limitations, but then we will be fully empowered by the Spirit in the new earth. John Piper writes this as an encouragement. So one of the things you say to a mom with a disabled, disabled child, you know the Bible teaches that even though your son has been denied a lifetime of leaping and running on this earth to the glory of God, there is a new earth coming, freed from every disease and disability, and he will have not just a lifetime, but an eternity to run and leap to the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, what we have before us is so glorious, so amazing, that the living God is not entrusting us with all of the details because we couldn't stand to be here anymore. This is what's set before us. And so he, he plans, the Lord God, the, God's plan is the full redemption of his creation, material and spiritual, so that we will be real bodily people in a new heaven and a new earth the way it was supposed to be before sin ruined everything. That's our glorious hope. That's why we live differently. That's why we live for Christ. That's why we choose to purify our lives. You know, when John writes this in 1 John about the fact that we're going to be like him because we will see him like he is, he writes this right after it. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. We are body and spirit now and forever. That's the promise that we have been given by the resurrection of Jesus Christ bodily. And so will his, those who belong to him, raised bodily. Father, we thank you for this precious truth. Oh God, I pray that it might Stir up our hearts and our lives to live differently by this truth, to know that this small window of time that is but a mere breath is our time to live out the gospel, to urge others to embrace the gospel, and to honor and glorify God in our bodies every day that we might be prepared to live with him for all eternity. I pray, O oh God, that you might really move this truth to a, 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 a place in our lives uh, that will cause us to behave differently. Would we apply this to our lives, I pray.
For Jesus' sake, amen. Because of this truth, one of the Apostle Paul's, I think, greatest motto lines was, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And he so believed that, that so shaped the way he lived. So go ahead, kill me. It's, it's a gain for me. I, I'll, I'll live here because Christ wants me to live here, but quite frankly, I wish you'd just kill me because I'd love to go on to be with Christ for all eternity. To die is gain. That's what he believed with all of his heart. You know, the, the promise of eternal life and bodily resurrection is, is there for us. It's, it's so close that we can reach out and, and touch it and grab it. And that's why the Apostle Paul said to them, don't put this at risk. Whatever you do, bad company corrupts good behavior. He said, stand firm. Don't let up. Hold on to this, what you've started to believe and receive. Do not let go of. Hold on to it for dear life. Uh, don't be moved. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. And, and, uh, and, and continue to labor for the Lord because you know that your labor for him is not in vain. That's what he urged the people to do. That's what I'm calling you to do. That's what God's word is calling to you today. Hold on for what Christ is holding you. Don't let go. Stand firm. Be immovable. But as we bow our heads together and as we conclude in prayer, in a situation in a sermon like this about the gospel and about eternal life, it's just possible that maybe someone is here this morning that has never reached out and welcomed this truth into your own life. And so as our heads are bowed, if there's someone here this morning who said, Pastor, you know, I, I've never understood this before, but I understand in hearing the gospel that I don't know Jesus Christ. I don't have this promise uh, certain in my life that I will, if I were to die today, that I'd be with Christ for all of eternity but today I want to receive Christ. Would you pray for me? Would you just slip up your hand wherever you are? I'm not going to call you out or anything. I'm just going to pray for you. Is there anybody here today is your day of salvation? Is you've never responded to this message. Just slip up your hand wherever you are. Now is the time to respond to this truth. Anybody, anywhere. Our Father and our God, the one who searches hearts, you have delivered to us the gospel. Jesus Christ died for our sins, was buried, rose again for our justification. We've been declared righteous by Christ, those who receive him. So, our God, we thank you for this truth, and you have promised us an eternity in the new heavens and new earth an eternity without sin, destroyed, sin destroyed. No more crying, no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering, no more disabilities, no more limitations. Just in the glorious presence of our glorious God with our own glorious bodies. Oh God, we thank you and look forward. Look forward and in the meantime, in this small window of time, let us live our lives responsibly, morally, with purity, commitment, passion, 
for our Jesus, who we love. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.